From jet engines to space rockets, telephones to computers, the world has seen spectacular change in the last hundred years, and the pace of progress is getting faster and faster. From electric cars to the metaverse, drone deliveries to climate solutions and genetic sequencing, we're investing in the companies that are not just changing the world today, but are also shaping the future. The Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Invest in progress. Capital at risk. Hello and welcome to The Advice Show. From advice to practice management, this podcast will give you UK and global insights into the financial planning profession. I'm Alicia, a reporter at NMA, here with my co-host Nicola Blackburn, and our guest today is Mike Barrett, Consulting Director at The Landcap. Hi Mike, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Great. Um, so today we'll be discussing the closure of Vanguard's advice arm, which CityWire exclusively reported last week. Vanguard set up their financial planning business in the UK in 2019, which means it's closed after just three years. When it launched the service, it was quite revolutionary because Vanguard charged a low 0.79% fee with no initial fee. So Mike, do you think that this low fee was a key factor behind their decision to close the service or what other factors do you think contributed to this? Well, I think it, it was a real surprise. The, the first we'd even kind of heard or got wind of anything was when we read it in New Model Advisor, which is obviously mm -hmm. where all the breaking news comes from. But <laughs> it's, yeah, it's surprising because Vanguard have really established capabilities globally around this and particularly in, in the States to offer low cost advice. I don't think cost is the problem. The 0.79 price for a lot of consumers, frankly, you could charge anything. So the market isn't price sensitive and consumers have a fairly poor understanding of what price it represents anyway in terms of in terms of charging. So I think the yeah, the question is kind of where what caused Vanguard to, to pull out. Mm. I mean more broadly with these things, we think there's there's probably three things which a firm needs to have if they're going to be if they're going to be building a direct consumer advice service, you need to have the brand. And Vanguard had invested an awful lot in that brand that I'm, I'm sure, uh, I don't know if it was just me being followed around wherever I went online <laughs> with, the, with the V for Vanguard adverts. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you look at that on YouTube, that had that's had 11 million views of, mm -hmm. of that advert. Yeah. So the brand, no presence, no problem with that. And that's growing and growing. Secondly, you've got to have scale. Firm ticking the box on that one. There was the <laughs> seven trillion in in dollars in assets globally, so yeah, no issues there. Mm. So I think it then comes down to the third issue around kind of desire and focus. And do you really want to be doing this? Is it a core part of your overall proposition? Right. If you're writing billions a day into ETFs into the states, do you really care about a very small weird island with? changing regulation and a cost of living crisis <laughs> and trying to attract investors into that. I think that's probably where, for me, that feels where the answer lies. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you feel like Vanguard sort of already had the market that they were going for with the financial planning service covered in a way because they have the multi-asset funds, because they have um, they have a, just an investor service as well, right? Um, you know, do you think they, that there sort of wasn't enough demand there? I I think that that's where the distinction probably sits. So mm. they are clearly 
hugely dominant in the in the investing side of things, both both globally and and in the UK. So their direct to consumer platform mm. over recent months and years has been attracting new more customers than the established players like such as Hargreaves, Interactive Investor, Fidelity. They've been picking up more customers than all of those combined. Mm. And they they I, I don't know, but they they are clearly attracted in one way or another by low-cost investing, whether that's for life strategy funds, mm. trackers, or, or whatever that is. I think that that's a very different beast to being able to offer financial planning services. The there's this is the fundamental problem with a lot of these services where if your product, if the only way you earn money is if you sell a product, if you sell some stuff, advice isn't the product that you're selling the mm. advice you've got to be able to say to people, go and save some cash or pay down some debt or take advantage of your employer's pension right. scheme or whatever that might be and push people kind of away out of your product set. And I think that that's that's one of the challenges of making advice work and particularly if you're trying to make advice work by virtue of selling your products. Right. Yeah, it wasn't just going to be a case of um, Vanguard always being able to filter customers, you know, into their into their multi-asset funds, into their own products. Just picking examples, uh, a younger investor, which again, Vanguard have reported for their, for their direct-to-consumer platform. They've been attracting um, investors kind of in their early 30s to, to the late mm. 30s, which is is a long, long way away from the, the type of investor who goes into the traditional advice sector. But someone like that's kind of starting out their career, coming out of university, finan good financial planning advice for those individuals perhaps is paying off your student loan, getting some protection in place, particularly if you've just started to build up a, a family, getting some cash savings in place, taking advantage of your employer scheme and all of those mm -hmm. types of things which are which go around in somebody an individual's personal financial life and there's several steps you need to take down to kind of tick off along that plan before you get to the point of saying right what what multi-asset funds should i should i invest <laughs> my isa in yeah yeah on the on the fees point mike if we if we just um sort of circle back to that for a moment obviously um in the industry with advice fees whether that be um, fees for you know businesses that are vertically integrated or independent firms. There's obviously a bit of a downward pressure um, on advice advice fees. But um, do you think there is a sweet spot in terms of you know where financial advice fees can be cheap, but you know the company can make it work? And and do you think Vanguard might have overstepped that um, sweet spot? Yeah, I think the these services have to work commercially. Mm. Um, so you've got to, like like any business, the, the cost of delivering your services, you've got to cover them with with the revenue you're bringing in, and ideally make a profit within that. And despite being a seven trillion asset manager, I'm sure that business unit had to work in isolation. They don't you don't become a, a seven trillion pound asset manager just by by being a charity and not running your business very carefully. But I think the the fee argument is it's kind of I think there's two dimensions to it. I think as as we mentioned earlier, from the from the consumer's point of view, it's perhaps starting to become a little bit more price sensitive than it used to be. Mm -hmm. But three or four years ago, we were committed. It's it's still not a price sensitive market. Mm. The leaders in the direct to consumer channel and the leaders in the advice channel are Hargreaves and St James's Place, respectively, who are 
I think it's fair to say more of a premium brand rather than the rather than the cheapest off, offering out there. So customers tend to go for value propositions rather than mm. rather than, than what is cheapest. So that 0.79 ongoing fee, all, wh- all whatever that fee. is, it, yeah, yeah, all in fee. It's not it's not so much the absolute amount around that. It's whether those fees are suitable for that type of customer. Mm. Does someone if it, if the age profile that they're getting is mid thirties? Does someone who's in their mid-30s need to be paying an annual fee to their advisor? And are they getting value for money for those services? Yeah. So also, well, I mean, on that as well. So they've mentioned that they will be refunding fees to their clients that they've had in the last two years. I mean, do you have any idea how much that might cost them? And also, how do you see their closure having impact on those customers who have invested them as an as an advisor for the last few years yeah i mean they're they're a seven trillion pound asset manager so i'm sure they'll probably be okay to be able to Mm -hmm. refund those fees but i i i think it's just more kind of the almost the admission of failure which they're having around this it was clearly a market they wanted to move into because of the success they've made into the states they clearly have made a huge investment in all of those adverts that have been stalking me around around the internet and everywhere and it's not worked so is that are they pulling out permanently is it is it more of kind of a a tactical retreat whilst the whilst the regulation evolves um that will time will tell i guess Mm. yeah because when when the story kind of came out you know we were under we were under the impression that um for yeah Vanguard's decision to close the the service was because clients that took it up actually didn't need that kind of more complex retirement folks advice that that we mentioned. Um, and and you mentioned the I think with the investor platform and also with the financial planning service that the average age of users was like in the thirties. Um, so they so they didn't require that. Um, but what do you make of that line of reasoning? Um, you know, do you think it was an issue of um, uptake and it, the, the wrong kind of uptake happening as as was um suggested yeah it it, it does sound like sound like there's perhaps kind of a, a misalignment between the the types of customers they were targeting mm. and the types of customers they're actually getting through so so trying to go after people i think they had a minimum of fifty thousand into the financial planning service as well so yes slightly wealthier individuals slightly older starting to think about moving towards retirement but if they're getting younger individuals with less with less complex investment needs Mm. then yeah that that target client misalignment is is starting to come through Mm. and that's that's obviously an issue now but it becomes an even bigger issue under consumer duty with the the requirement for all firms large and small to have documented and assessed and agreed their their target market mm. to monitor that they are indeed distributing and selling into the said target market on an ongoing basis and if that wasn't enough to do the value for money assessment to make sure that these services they're delivering to that target market mm. represent value for money and i wonder whether that 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 pressure kind of that's coming over the horizon very rapidly for later on this year that that, that must have been something that was part of it i think so. mm. Mm. i mean there's been a quite a few like hybrid and robo advice businesses that are struggling to make a profit with low fees like this. Um, and obviously Vanguard, as you mentioned, is a huge company with amazing backing and resources and marketing. 
So do you think that this kind of um, low margins can succeed as a business model at all? Um, it's very difficult. I mean, going back to kind of the three things you need, if you're going to do this, you need the brand, you need the scale, you need the focus. The the advantage that the smaller startup firms have is that they have that focus. If, mm. if advice is all mm. they do, then that's all we do. We're not trying to kind of reinvent ourselves to sell more funds or whatever that might be. Mm. And that also means you're... Um, if the business is run well, you're able to keep a really tight control of your cost and grow your cost base organically and all, all of that type of stuff. But the the downside around that is you don't have the brand focus, you don't have the you don't have the scale necessarily. So think of another example that used to be based very close to where we're recording now, Nutmeg, starting up in Vauxhall and, the, and again bombarding the whole um, of the London area with Nutmeg adverts repeatedly for several several years. Mm. It took them it took them ages to build up any sort of brand profile with with that as well, and you've got to have deep pockets with that. And whilst Nutmeg, I guess you could say, have become a success because they're increasingly recognized they've been acquired and they've got a big parent now who's keeping them going and all the rest mm. of it um there's a lot to admire of it but then you look at the amount of money that was spent invested into nutmeg and yeah that was a huge investment to get to this particular point i think this kind of this raises the questions about other um you know vertically integrated asset managers in the space who have you know um in recent years launched or really kind of bolstered their in-house um, financial planning and wealth planning services. Um, but, you know, are there kind of key, so, so I guess I'm thinking about firms like M&G and Aviva, and, but are there kind of key differentiators in your mind between what they're doing and what Vanguard tried to do? It sounds like you said that with Vanguard, you know, they've always been known as an investment um, company. Um, is, is that part of it? Do these other firms have lots of other arms to them that... that it does feel like perhaps some of those businesses, either through themselves or through some of the some of the advice firm acquisitions that they've made as well, they're perhaps better placed to be able to kind of deal with that kind of that more holistic nature of advice we, we talked about earlier. So actually, mm-hmm. yeah, you don't need to invest; you need to take out some protection. That that's going to improve your financial well-being far more than buying buying a multi-asset fund or whatever that might be. And I think that that's the that that's the challenge around all of this. All, all of the businesses you mentioned there have really good, strong brands and really kind of strong messages around those brands and values and aspirations which they want to deliver and they want to improve financial lives and all the rest of that stuff, which is which is all hugely laudable. But repeating what I said earlier, that doesn't necessarily mean that your best outcome is to is to buy one of their products. It's more about the the financial plan and trying to get the advice as the actual product there. Mm. Well, I think it's kind of interesting what you've been saying, especially about having the focus and let's say the, the drive to focus specifically on advice and financial planning um, because obviously, so Vanguard are closing their advice arm currently but they mentioned in the statement that their clients are looking for other and more adaptable forms of financial planning. Um, but in combination with the fact that uh, many of their clients are in their 30s, for example, if they were going to take another approach to financial planning or financial advice, how would you see that working, especially with simplified advice coming in? 
I, I wonder <clears throat> I wonder whether this is down to also kind of the the nature of the fee structure there, this ongoing servicing, you're you're hooked into paying fees on a regular basis. Whereas actually, again, just sticking with the example we talked about, someone kind of starting their career, getting their first job, perhaps moving into a house and all the rest of it, there's maybe quite a few life events they're going to go through fairly quickly where, yeah, buying that house, starting a family, getting married, getting an inheritance, where there's immense value for advice at those particular moments in time and kind of recalibrating the plan and getting the plan set up. But you probably don't necessarily need to be paying regular retainer fees effectively for, on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. And do you think that, um, I mean, obviously it's impossible to say, <laughs> but would you, would you estimate that the, for example, their decision to close was based on whether it was profitable, not on whether they attracted enough clients to take up the service in the first place. Yeah, I, 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 the numbers clearly can't have stacked up around all of that. So if if it was hugely profitable and they were doing brilliantly on that, then you don't pull out. Mm -hmm. That's I think that's almost certainly the reality mm -hmm. of how these things how these things work. But I also wonder whether it's, as I mentioned earlier, a, a perhaps a bit of a tactical retreat with kind of the, the, the drumbeat of the regulation going to be evolving around all of this. So perhaps it might be a little bit easier to start to kind of give some sort of guided advice services, low cost advice services within that. Mm -hmm. If, yeah, that probably doesn't help the the this focus we talked about if you know that the regulatory side's perhaps a bit of a moving target over over, over the coming years mm. it's interesting so yeah it's not it's not a case of something that you could see working um you know maybe in like 10 or 15 years down the line if 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 i don't know if regulation around this is a lot more kind of set in place and um and I don't know, maybe fees fees are lower, but I suppose, as you said before, it's not necessarily fees that customers are thinking about. It's, it's value, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of into kind of fairly big picture territory <laughs> talking about this, but, um, and we, we're doing some work at the moment looking at the advice gap, which will be something we'll be talking about in a, in a couple of months' time. Mm. And there's, I think there's kind of, there's two things which always strike me when, when we look at the, the consumer research around that. For, firstly, it's the, it's a re reminder that there is a very large proportion of the population who are um, in a not particularly good, great way at all financially. So around half of the population are in debt, and it's considerable debt, mm. and are taking on more debt as they, they go into it as well. Mm. So the... The last thing those people should be doing is buying buying an investment product. They should be paying off the debt, getting some cash savings in as well. But I think also generally, I mean, it, um, with the advice gap stuff we've been looking at, it's very clear that there is a segment of the population who could afford to pay for advice. So they got the wealth there, but they simply don't trust financial services. And in particular, they don't trust financial advisors. The, mm. the professionalism, the, the change, the transformation in the advice sector that we've seen in the last decade through RDR with qualifications, with a move away from commission into, into fees. So the, the only way an advice business exists is if they 
genuinely do right by by the customer. There's no backhanders mm. or anything like that anymore. That message hasn't resonated with the real person in the street. They they still think advisors are salespeople, sales well, salesmen is the exact word. Yeah, the typical kind of old cliche of advisor that's out there. Mm. So trust is a real, real problem as well. And again, mm. that that that's part of the problem with with the kind of a surprise of what Vanguard were going out. They fundamentally it was a really strong proposition. There's nothing wrong with their 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 products, and they've got a really strong trusted brand that's out there. Yeah. Um. So they could have done a lot of good within mm. within all of this, and they were attempting to serve a, a type of customer who most traditional financial advisors don't go anywhere near anyway. So the traditional advice sector wasn't feeling threatened by it yeah. at all. But even despite all of those kind of those kind of nice, comfortable tailwinds, they, they, they've pulled out. Mm, yeah. What impact do you think that um, them pulling out and shutting down and most, I don't want to say giving up, but leaving this kind of sector, what impact do you think that that has on consumer trust of the industry? I can't imagine it's a particularly great experience for the, the whatever the number of customers they, they acquired within mm. all, all of that is to so quickly discover that somebody is, yeah, sorry, it's not working, see you later. And even even refunding the fees, you still feel like you're kind of dropped in it a little bit. And again, the, some of the stuff we're doing on the advice gap survey shows that there's, there's issues with trust, but there's also a challenge of awareness and referrals and wh where do you go to find a good financial advisor? Um, if, if you're, mm. particularly if your friends and family or your, your kind of personal network can't recommend a good advisor mm. to you. Where, where'd you go? They, you Google financial advice and God knows what you find sometimes on, on, on that system as well. So it's, yeah, it's another kind of just chipping away at it, I think. I mean, financial services generally, I mean, thank God politicians have spent the last decade destroying what every, any sign of trust they had. But financial services are just above politicians, I think, in terms of the level of trust. Mm. And that, that's, that's not good. It's not good. Mm. Um, on we, we sort of touched on it briefly before, but um, so with this model, Vanguard have had a lot of success in the US. So do you, in terms of the financial, this sort of simple financial planning model, so why do you think that is? And, and why is there not a market for it here? I mean, it's clearly a much, much bigger market mm. over there. I know kind of other clients with kind of, global operations talk about how i don't know the, the uk market's about the size of chicago or something like that in terms of <laughs> in terms of the, the, the states so so the numbers stack up a lot right. a lot more easier but i mean it's also it's a it's a it's obviously a clearly a very different tax regime mm. environment as well but but it's something they've stuck with it's evolved through kind of telephone advice into online services as well yeah. so they've that kind of that commitment that focus which is perhaps what's not been there in the UK has mm. is something they've kept within the UK in the US. Do you think there's anything also like regulatory differences between? I mean, you you mentioned like the tax structure between the US and the UK, where it would be perhaps easier there or more profitable, other than just scale. Because also you mentioned like that part of the reason could have been that if simplified advice is more readily available through the regulator in a few years here then why would they try doing it now do you think there's anything else like that that could have contributed to it i think that that does come into i mean for me regulation isn't 
necessarily the problem. It's just it's a it's a set of rules which you've got to spend some time navigating what they what they actually mean, and mm. but then you've got to follow them. And you but the the challenge is more about building a sustainable, profitable business around 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 those rules. But they increasingly will make a kind of a judgment and expectation based on the brand that they're seeing. So the larger brands, particularly the ones who talk about, yeah, we're enabling your financial life and all, all of those types of things, they have an expectation there as a consumer that you are going to do the right thing by me. You are going, you say you're going to support me through my entire financial life. And that's what I mean. I mean, to suddenly discover kind of page 48 of the terms and conditions document that actually a caveat says sorry we won't support you through your financial life that's that's mm. that's where some of the problems can start to come through and again going back to consumer duty their consumer duty requires an increased clarity in terms of customer communications and understanding of what they're they're getting it's no longer just good enough to be clear fair not misleading you've got to get informed consent around the product or service which they're they're moving into mm. do you think because i'm just thinking about the fact that this business launched in 2019 um do you do you suspect that last year and a difficult few years really yeah. um could have had an impact on why it wasn't successful yeah it, it, undoubtedly if you were going to pick a moment in well my lifetime hopefully uh, uh yeah it's hard to think of a worse moment you could have launched a, a financial planning and investment business mm. going straight into what is hopefully going to be a once in several generations pandemic and then a war and then all of the cost of living stuff that goes around that it's mm. hugely challenging i mean we see we've seen some evidence more broadly in the kind of the platform sector as well that's um yeah, some of the some of the cash products have started to become much, much more kind of um, much more, if not attractive, certainly something which has to be more formally discounted than it ever used to be. So mm. you can get probably four percent almost instant access on cash these days mm. for, for an at retirement client. Some of the annuity products, some of the kind of the guaranteed with a small G products which are out there, again, are, are way more attractive now and a high interest rate. Um, volatility market than they, mm. than they used to be and yeah for for a lot of investors that's where they, that's where we've been going if you can get 4.2 or whatever it is percent through ns and i and that's guaranteed above eighty five thousand. yeah obviously inflation's higher than that but that's for a lot of people that's for the risk averse investor that's where they want to go and mm. i think that that's that's the environment vanguard and all all platforms whether they're advised or D2C have been playing in recently. So, yeah, we've talked about a lot of factors really that have come into, um, you know, what, what made Vanguard close this service. Um, but in terms of that market of like simplified financial planning in the UK, is, are there any providers that you think have actually kind of cracked that, cracked that market? No, it's a short answer, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I guess it depends what you mean by cracked it and, so there's plenty yeah. of firms which are giving really good outcomes to customers who've gone through their processes and whether that's um, through, I don't know, Hargreaves, Interactive Investor, Nutmeg, Vanguard, all of the types of firms we've talked about. Mm. Um, they, a lot of them, all of them will invest time in kind of investor education and it's not advice or formal guidance or anything, but it's just kind of nudging gently people to build and invest in a reasonably intelligent way 
whether that's just through a single life strategy fund or building a portfolio on Hargreaves or whatever it is. And aside from kind of the real market volatility we've been around, a lot of those investors have had good experiences. But the the problem is what also what, what you alluded to a moment ago, where particularly in a direct-to-consumer channel, if things mm. start to go bad and the markets become volatile, that investor behavior, that in that behavioral stuff, which no one can get away with, they're much more likely to panic yeah. without the advisor kind of holding their hand and and saying, yeah, slow down, Mike, you, yeah, stick with the plan. Mm. And yeah, if you switch out now, this is probably going to be the worst moment to do it. Mm. I think that that's the... That's part of the challenge with these. It's not so much getting people up to investing, it's but also stopping them from doing something, making a stupid decision further on down the line and sticking with the plan. Yeah, yeah. Can you see, so in, in that space, can you see the ones that do have a bit of a presence? Like I think you mentioned Hargraves. Do you think they will be the ones that ultimately are successful at this simplified advice model that the regulator is kind of pushing for? Well, they're... They're certainly betting on that. If, if you look at some of the stuff they're kind of talking about in terms of future developments mm. and some of their market updates they've done um, to yeah, kind of analyst presentations recently. So they're investing in particularly some of the data analytics sides and, mm. and kind of data insights and starting to be able to kind of nudge and alert consumers in that way. They've been lobbying hard on the regulation to do that as well and they're also starting to talk about developing out an advised presence so so for Hargreaves specifically they've highlighted that the I guess the good outcomes we talked about a moment ago people accumulating wealth throughout their career perhaps through Hargreaves but getting to the point of retirement or approaching retirement where they've got more money they've got more complexity these days that's probably where you're starting to inherit as well with with age expectancy mm. and Hargreaves lose quite a few customers to traditional advisors that way because they can't serve them. So they're evolving their business model kind of in that direction as well. Mm. But yeah, I think Hargreaves definitely would want to be a player in this, both from what they're talking about in terms of development and the the pressure they're putting on Treasury and the, reg the regulator to evolve the rules to make it easier to do. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant. I've watched this space. It's definitely an interesting area, isn't it, of, of the market? Um and yeah, I think that sounds like a good note to end on. So Mike, thank you very, very much for coming in and chatting to us about this today. Um, it's big news and it's been, a, been great to have you. Um, and thank you very much everyone for listening. Uh, if you'd like to, well, Mike, actually, if they'd like to get in contact um, or learn more about what the Lancat does, where can they find out more? Lancatfinancial.co.uk. Um, you can find, well, my contact details or somebody more sensible to speak to within one of my many colleagues as well. So. Yeah, that's the website. Brilliant. Thank you. And uh, if any of our listeners have any questions about this episode, feel free to get in contact with me. I'm uh, nblackburn at citywire.co.uk over email. Um, and I'm Alicia Hagopian, ahagopian at citywire.co.uk. Um, or you can reach out to us on Twitter. We're at New Model Advisor. Thanks very much, everyone, for listening. <laughs> From jet engines to space rockets, telephones to computers, the world has seen spectacular change in the last hundred years, and the pace of progress is getting faster and faster. From electric cars to the metaverse, drone deliveries to climate solutions and genetic sequencing, we're investing in the companies that are not just changing the world today, 
but are also shaping the future. The Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Invest in progress. Capital at risk.